is uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue, Blue podcast. podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode of the London is Blue podcast. As always, your host, Brandon, join my co-host. Not Dan, not Nick. No, this is a Cobham Youth Update. That is right. We've got at Chelsea Youth, or better known as Phil, join us to provide us with uh, an update in September uh, since the last one. Quite a bit has happened, hasn't it? It has. We are fully into the swing of things this season. We've got the dev squad. We've got the under-19s. We've got the under-18s. We've got the under-17s. We've got loans. We are off and running. And yes, this is an international break. It's the perfect time to hit pause and talk about what, what's happened and what lies ahead in what looks to be a very busy October. Well, and then, you know, a lot of the new signings have settled. Some rosters have settled as well. So I think that we have a little bit more of a clear picture kind of of what the Academy is going to look like uh, through this season. So, uh, you know, per usual, at Chelsea Youth on Twitter, uh, live tweets the games, tells you where they're broadcast, the source for the Academy. Go check it out um, if you are not one of the few not subbed to him on Twitter. But we can go ahead and kick it off with the dev squad uh most recently right uh lost to sutton in the efl trophy um beat everton drew at palace which i watched those back was quite wild uh amari hutchison is with them uh looks like casade is going to stay with this team i guess where do you want to start with the dev squad knowing that between personnel and results and i know i'm probably going to say this all episode a lot has genuinely happened. It has. Uh, we can start with the, the first of the three results you mentioned. They lost at Sutton in the opening group game of the EFL Trophy, which is uh, football league teams in League One, League Two, and uh, 16 invited under 21 clubs. Uh, Chelsea are one of those. They're in a group with uh, Leighton Orient, uh, Sutton, and Oxford United. Uh, Sutton was the opening game, and they played really well, to be fair. They lost 1 0 to a very early goal. They just got caught. A little bit on their heels with a, a through ball straight through the middle. Bashir Humphreys got caught sh- a step short and Ted Sharman Lowe wasn't sure coming out. And then they dominated the game. And Amari Hutchinson, as we said, he's in good form and we'll talk about that in a bit. But he was unbelievable at times on the night. He deserved a goal in the first half for some of his wide play crosses that both teased for a centre forward or looked like he saw in himself they were very deliberate in at least two cases where he was aiming for the far corner and it just wasn't their night but they played well and and that sort of was vindicated by the going to Everton in the PL2 a few days later and winning 2-0 and comfortably as well Everton are traditionally a very good team at this level and always a hard team to play against so to go up and to come away with a 2-0 win first goals for Mason Burstow and for Cesare Casade both in the second half was a really good way to get back to winning um, form after losing to Fulham, drawing with Manchester City and losing to Sutton. Uh, and then this, most recently, this past weekend, they went to Crystal Palace, who are, who've had a fantastic start to the season. They are currently joint top of the table. They've got a very strong group that has challenged for the under-18 league titles the last couple of years, and they've, they've graduated to this group now. Uh, and again, a really good performance. They were 2-0 up, they were 3-1 up, and I think... Yeah, Selhurst Park in front of a decent crowd. The pressure got to them a little bit at the end. Palace, very good players themselves, and they scored a couple of late goals to get a point. But there were two more goals, uh, two goals for Murray Hutchinson, rather. They were his first two for the club. Hit the hit the post with a lovely free kick. Uh, Cassaday will get credit for his second goal. It was uh, a shot from Lewis Hall that hit him on the way in. But he had a, a hand in the second goal with one of those runs that if you watch the best of his play for Italy and for Inter, he's got this ability, Michael Ballack, like to hit the box at the right time, imposing aerial presence. 
There was a perfect example of that here where he rose, the shot was saved and the rebound was scored. But certainly Hutchinson and Casade have looked good. Lewis Hall has returned to a central midfield role and looked he's absolutely thrived there, as you'd expect. And there's going to be some ups and downs on the results. But as we go along, we can see the sort of football that Mark Robinson's team are, are going to play. And it's a little bit different to the way Andy Meyer set his team up while retaining the principles of how Chelsea work as an academy. But certainly, look if you go back and watch the highlights of these three games and maybe the, the, the four matching in places, if you can get it on Sutton's website, there's a lot of wide play. There's a lot of focus on deliveries into the box, low deliveries. Both goals at Everton came off low deliveries in. A couple of goals against Palace did as well. And I think as we go along into a busy October, you'll see that this is the way they're going to play now. Wait, the Everton match, was that at Goodison Park? It was at Southport, where they tend to play their games. Yeah, I, I thought there was a chance it was there. Uh, I know the Crystal Palace match was at Selhurst Park. And again, it's like fun when the Academy boys can get out there, be in a Premier League dressing room, walk out, albeit an empty Premier League stadium. You know, it just it gives them the bigger sense of, you know, kind of what's next. Right. And I know it's only a couple of times a season that they get to play in the first team stadiums. Um, but it, it definitely is special. I was watching the highlights back, too. And and again, just like the size of the pitch and, you know, kind of the atmosphere and, and you know, just the, 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 you know, kind of the different atmosphere and environment that they're put in. I always love seeing that, and I get why they can't, and it probably shouldn't be in those stadiums every single week, but I, I, I do love that they have those opportunities in their development. And the players love it as well, and they're, they're meant to have uh, three at the first team ground each season, and Chelsea tend to like having one or two early and the other one late, and the way that the season's worked out this year, particularly with the the women's game that was meant to be at the bridge and was subsequently postponed, uh, they couldn't fit one in yet, but they will do... Um, certainly at least once before the end of the season they're, they're allowed to be flexible depending on first team scheduling but yeah it's very important for these occasions to come up for, for players to get the, the, the experience of playing the first team grounds they've got a game at Brighton in the first team ground again coming up um, they, they won their last season um, at the back end of it in their relegation battle where they played at Old Trafford they played at Everton's Goodison Park as you rightly said they played at Brighton they were uh, they were they were thrown at the deep end in those games and they, they actually thrived in them and to your point you, you can sometimes find out a little bit more about a player's character and their makeup when they play on a big stage, even if it is a mostly empty stadium. It's that how do you handle yourself in that environment, in this hallowed space in many cases? And it gives you that little bit of that flavor, that drive, that desire to get to the next level. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, touching on Mario Hutchinson a little bit, he is magnetized to the goal. Again, watching him play, um, you know, at, at one point, I think their goalkeeper made a good save across goal, and he was like on the backside of the six. But as the ball, because it was crossed from his side, the ball went across, and he just drifted back in towards the goal, just waiting for something to happen. And sure enough, keeper palmed the right into his path, and he pounced on it in front of the defender. That is the one thing that I, I see with him, is that he is magnetically attracted to the goalpost. No matter what he does, if it's not to goal, Amari Hutchinson is not doing it. He's incredibly productive. We saw it last season for Arsenal uh, under 23 level, most notably in two games against Chelsea where he scored two fabulous solo goals. Uh, and as much as anything else, that would have attracted uh, Chelsea to his services. And 
whether the, the, there was talk he was going to go on loan to a championship team the, in a move that never materialised for one reason or another, that could be revisited in January. But for now, the development squad have got his services and Graham Potter potentially has his services. We don't know what the new manager will do, what options will be needed as the schedule gets incredibly packed before the World Cup. I think it's unlikely that you'll see him, but we're talking about a, a kid here who was on the Arsenal first team bench for a dozen games last season. He was that close to a team that was that close to Chelsea. So if he continues his development and opportunities open up under a new manager, you might see him get uh, on the bench here and there. Five subs will certainly play into his favour. The League Cup draw away to Manchester City probably didn't play into his favour, nor does the start to the Champions League campaign in terms of getting minutes in a potential dead rubber sixth group game. But uh, he's one of those who started the season well, playing at a standard that he's already shown that he is far too good for. And in lieu of taking that next step at a first team environment, you want to see him refine different areas of his game. Now he's at Chelsea, he's starting to find his attacking output again. You want to see him play in a different system, provide more defensively on and off the ball. The same things we talk about with young attacking players. We don't want to lose their attacking swagger and all the everything they bring to the game in the final third but if you want to get into that first team environment you have to have a rounded game as we know and that's something to look for between now and uh, when the transfer window opens yeah for sure and then with Cassidy I real small easy thing wanted to say was just that uh he's a big boy he, he is a big boy. is tall and towers in that midfield as well he seems like he's very strong direct and, and powerful he is, and unfortunately for him, he was sent off on his debut at Sutton. It was one of those where he got two yellow cards and the second one was silly. He fell over and grabbed the ball instinctively, claiming a free kick that wasn't a free kick and it was given as a second yellow card. And it was really nice to see him then, days later, bounce back in the right way, scoring a goal. A really impressive central midfield performance. And we've only seen him a few times so far for Chelsea and here's a boy who doesn't speak the language, isn't settled in yet and is still managing to contribute. Once he's comfortable and a little bit more familiar with the teammates at Chelsea, you'll start to see the full arsenal, the full array of what he can offer. But certainly already we've seen similar things to what we've seen in his highlights and what attracted Chelsea to him. He's got that languid style of running that so many tall, elegant central midfielders have got that he eats up ground without seemingly putting in the effort. Even though he definitely is putting in that effort. He times his runs into the box. He's got a lovely technique with a, a curled shot from anywhere on the edge of the box that seems very reminiscent of players from maybe the mid-90s that um, he may have not necessarily grown up watching but been influenced by coaching wise and everything else but we can certainly look forward to him being with the development squad at least until January again I think the plan will be to keep him here for the entire season unless a really good move opens up because you want to embed him in Chelsea embed him in England and get him very comfortable where he is after fair upheaval it's it's a teenager moving to a new country and that's always going to take some getting used to on and off the pitch. All right. Well, uh, again, just want to kind of touch on them, uh, especially as, you know, they're new to the club and, and as we kind of examine their place on how they're fitting in. Uh, but over to the U19s, right? We got a little bit of an update there. Uh, that's right. U19s is specifically for the, the Champions League, essentially the Youth Champions League. Uh, lost 4-2 to Dinamo Zagreb in the opening match, just like... The men's team uh, going to Croatia was not friendly, Phil. It was not. It was um, a relatively insipid performance. Dinamo didn't offer a tremendous amount. They had 
four or five shots and they scored four goals and that was some soft defending some some goalkeeping that Ted Kerr won't necessarily be happy with but as a, a very young goalkeeper in the competition he's there to learn um, Leo Castledine scoring two goals was probably the the only positive to take away from the game uh, he scored one in either half two headers and the MO are a good team in the under-19 Champions League. They are perennial threats. They produce a significant number of future Croatia internationals. This wasn't going to be an easy game, but given that they didn't play very well, it's disappointing that Chelsea managed to play worse and put themselves behind the eight ball straight away in the group, which was then exacerbated by mirroring or foreshadowing since it was beforehand. The first team's result again. They drew 1-1 with Salzburg at Cobham a few hours before the first team did the same at Stamford Bridge. This one was frustrating because they actually played really well. They came out and they showed the commitment and the desire and the fight and the character that they didn't show in Zagreb. Um, they refused to be drawn into uh, a fair amount of gamesmanship from Salzburg. This is relatively commonplace in the under-19 Champions League. They took the lead, Lewis Hall with a lovely goal, and then they just let Salzburg back into it with 10 minutes to go. A soft goal straight through the middle, a little bit like the goal we talked about from Sutton earlier. And like the first team, now they've got Milan home and away and they need to get results. They need at least four points from those two games. Milan lead the group with four points themselves. Ideally, you'll have six out of six, but they're a bit more of an unknown quantity because while Salzburg and Dinamo are both regulars in the UEFA Youth League and regulars in the last eight and beyond, Salzburg having reached the final twice and won it once, Milan haven't been in it for a long time. So while they do have a productive and top-level academy... Returning to this peak level competition will be an experience for them. Chelsea need to take advantage being experienced in it, being in every season and, and going to that game and make sure they, they win at least one of them. Here we are, <laughs> both teams desperately in need for points. Um, do you feel like for the academy, it's very unique for them playing in Europe with, you said gamesmanship, but you know, it's, it is a very different style of match is that something that is a pretty big learning curve for the academy that you know they're really not experienced to it you know the same way that maybe if someone came up through the lower divisions of the the you know the english football pyramid all of a sudden they get to a champions league team and it's like oh the, we have to approach this completely different than anything domestically I think there's definitely an element of that. There's certainly a learning curve. And it's not necessarily that they're facing continental competition. Chelsea are one of the foremost academies at getting the younger age groups on European tours throughout their development from under nines upwards. But when you get into this competition, the officiating in particular becomes a lot stricter and a lot more in line with what we see in the Champions League. There's stuff that you might be able to get away with domestically or or vice versa, that you don't get away with that happens differently under UEFA refereeing. It shouldn't be the case because everyone operates the same laws of the game, but we know how it works. And beyond that, there's also an intensity to these games that isn't necessarily replicated in the under-18 Premier League or in PL2. There are games that are intense, but when you're playing against uh, teams from different countries, that intensity takes on a different measure. And you can end up chasing games. Uh, Chelsea 1-0 up at home to Salzburg. You don't want the pace and the intensity of the game to be too high at the end. You want to be controlling it and seeing it out. And they weren't able to do that because they kept the pace of the game a little bit too high and hopefully they can learn from that. And we're talking learning here. This is a competition where players born in 2003 are eligible to players over ages, with the exception of so many of Chelsea's new signings who haven't been able to do that because they haven't been at the club for two years. 
the core of most squads will be 2004 born, some 2005s. In the first couple of games, Chelsea have had some 2006s on the pitch. Ted Kurd in both games, 2006. Keanu Dyer, late 2006, is still 15. He started the first game. They're giving boys real high-level experience against players one, two, possibly three years older than them at times. And that's a, a really valuable learning curve that they may not have shone and shown their best football in those games, but they will be much better for it. And I think that's something you'll continue to look for throughout the rest of the group not necessarily because they want them to learn at the expense of results they are there on merit as well but you can tie it all together all right uh well that is a good place we're going to take a quick break uh, but we appreciate all the support from the sponsors and we're back we're going to jump into the u18s uh who man they know how to score goals so thank you to sponsors for financially supporting the show and we'll be right back all right so I, I do want to come back to the U19s just, just one last time, Phil. Uh-huh. We've won this competition. You've seen Fick. Twice. You've seen Tammy. Did Mace win it too, right? He won it with a, a little contribution as one of the younger players he did um, in the second year. He wasn't a regular in that version, but yes, he has won it. So to your point, Chelsea have pedigree in this competition. We're off to a rough start. Uh, I guess kind of the way you look at it, we got to play Milan, which again, the last time we were in it, we were playing Juventus and got absolutely smashed around. What are kind of your hopes for their results, knowing that they desperately have to get at a minimum, probably four points from Milan? I think you start with absolutely non-negotiable. You have to win at home against Milan and you have to win at home against Dinamo. And then you go to Milan and that's the one where you'd probably fancy yourselves to get more of a result than Salzburg. Salzburg, traditionally good. We know that they're capable. It might be a slightly weaker crop from them than they had last year when they were losing finalists. But if you can take six points from the home games and one from Milan, that leaves you with eight, which at worst should get you into second place in the group, which means you then enter a playoff against one of the eight domestic champions path teams that reaches that that stage which was where Chelsea were eliminated last year they lost 5-1 to Genk there's a mirror side to the competition so the side that Chelsea are in mirrors the Champions League group stage and then there's another competition on the other side where 32 teams will who, who won their domestic titles but their first teams aren't good enough to be in the Champions League still get to play at this elite competition level um the group winners will go straight through to the last 16 and then the runners-up play in a playoff to join them. Those eight points, were they to get seven from the remaining four plus the one they've already got, should see them into second. Ideally, you get 10 to 12. Um, but certainly, we know that Salzburg and Dinamo are good and have been. Milan are the unknown quantity, but you can't treat them as a an unknown quantity that you fear. You've got to go in there and say, we've won this twice. We we have a pedigree in this competition. We have experience. We have the talent. And now we have to go out there and and, and don't even leave, leave it to doubt. Chelsea could have put the game away against Salzburg multiple times and they let them hang around and you don't let teams hang around, especially in, in, in the top level competition. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So again, no, not a lot of room for error as it is for uh, both squads as we go. But uh, pushing over to the U18s, um, uh, uh, I, yeah, not great results. If we're honest, like I said, I know they love to score goals and they a love real to be high, high flying, but yeah, it's a mixed bag of results here. Not great. 
Not great, not terrible. They've had three games in three different competitions. One of them's technically an under-17 competition, but it was the majority of the same players involved regardless. A very young group of first-years playing in the under-18s. The first um, game that we'll cover since we last spoke was the second of back-to-back games against Southampton. One was in the league and that finished two each. They went back there the following weekend in the under-18 cup, which is... Mostly designed to allow teams cross regional matches. They Chelsea play in the under eighteen League South. They only play teams in their rough geographic region. They don't play against Manchester United or Manchester City or Newcastle or Sunderland, so on and so forth. Uh, mainly because travel becomes a factor for for younger players um, with everything else that they've got going on. This competition will pair two teams from the south against two teams from the north, and Chelsea will play against Southampton. Derby and Everton and Southampton was the first game and it just so happened the schedule paired them with two successive trips down to Staplewood they lost 3-0 in that second game uh, a result that looks worse than it was Southampton used that weekend's schedule to bring back age eligible players who've already been moved up to their B team in PL2 they didn't have a PL2 game that weekend so Jimmy Morgan came down Cam Bragg came down Dominic Ballard came down Dominic Ballard's already scored for their first team by the way uh, and Chelsea used the opportunity of a cup match to rotate and play some of the players who hadn't played in the first month of the season. So whereas the previous weekend's game was maybe a little bit of a fairer match and it finished 2-2 to that point, Southampton won 3-0. Deservedly winners. They took their chances. Chelsea didn't. Travis Akomia hit the crossbar with a header very early on. Missed another similar opportunity in the second half. On those moments, results change. But they'll have learned from it. Um, it was also an interesting time between Chelsea and Southampton because both games fell either side of the much publicised decision by Tyler Dibbling to re- return to Southampton having moved to Chelsea in the summer a move that didn't work out for him for several reasons he's gone back to Southampton now signed a scholarship good luck to him um, but the under-18s they then bounced back um, after the weekend cancellation games due to the death of Queen Elizabeth they went to Arsenal in the under-17 Premier League Cup which is another they've got the under 18 cup under 17 cup and under 16 cup 18s and 16s mirror each other at the group stage 17s does not in this one they've got arsenal leicester and fulham and they started with a 3-0 win at hale end tyreek george scored chinonso chibuese scored and then frankie runham scored frankie runham's an under 16 striker who shared a pitch with fellow 2007 born arsenal player ethan waneri who less than a week later made his first team debut so you can go from relative obscurity to playing in front of a global audience very, very quickly. Not to say that anyone at Chelsea is in line to do that anytime soon, but it's it's fascinating watching these players develop, knowing that they can go from generally nowhere to being absolutely at the very top of uh, the, the, the agenda and the discussion quite quickly. Um, but I digress. There was a, a really promising performance as well against a, a good Arsenal team that they'd already beaten 1-0 in the under-18 league to open, open the season. Uh, they won 3-0. They would have been perfectly uh, justified that they won 6-0. Plenty of chances, really good performances, good opportunity to rotate the squad around. A few more schoolboys played later in the game. And that brought us to Norwich as the Under-18 League returned on Saturday. And as you alluded to earlier, their goalkeeper had an absolute stormer. Chelsea should have been out of sight. It sounds like I'm repeating myself with a lot of this. There have been numerous games this season where Chelsea have had the better of the game, the better of the chances, and haven't capitalised. This was a game where Caleb Anson, the first-year scholar in goal for Norwich, made a string of superb saves. One of them, a save of the season contender to deny Donnell McNeely just before half-time. 
Chelsea couldn't find their way through. They huffed and they puffed. They couldn't blow the door down. And very typically, three minutes to go, Norwich go on the counter-attack, get in behind, and they score the goal, only goal of the game. So nothing to nothing nothing to worry about, but it's 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 been the story of the season so far in yeah. lots of ways. Yeah, and to your point, fine margins. Like, you know, I was watching the Norwich match back too, and you know, Chelsea just put a ton of hot like if you if you if you get XG at that level, like Oh, it would have been off the Chelsea. That, and that's game. exactly it, right? Uh their goalkeeper played, you know, stood on his head, uh, had an absolute worldy. Um, you know, Chelsea definitely did enough to win the game, but didn't, you know, gave away the breakaway. Chelsea had a breakaway. Surprise, goalkeeper saved it as well. It's just the, the the common theme there. You know, some things go the other way, right? Now, all of a sudden, at least you have two wins in a, in a loss. With, and the loss has very interesting circumstances around it. Again, Southampton, a very, very top academy uh, team. The, and, reigning, the reigning Southern champions, and exactly the, that. Exactly, and the reigning champion. So, you know, my, right, to remind everyone, they kind of go in two-year cycles, right? And so Chelsea are kind of at the beginning of this new two-year cycle. And yeah, absolutely. There are a few holdovers second year wise. Um, the likes of Lewis Horn, Brody Hughes, for example, have already moved up to the development squad more, not necessarily full time, but they play more at that level than they do at the 18s. Uh, a lot of the other second years have been out injured to start the season. That's Ronnie Stutter, that's Tudor Mendelado, that's Zane Silcott Dubry. So they've really had the, the 16 first year scholars dominating the, the squad for the most part. Um, and and they started they, they 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 that was their first defeat of the league season against Norwich and it's still very early days they've only had four league games the league table hasn't really settled down and shaken its way out yet uh, plenty of football to be played and they return after the international break uh, away to Crystal Palace which will be a, a very interesting game they won their last season Palace have had a strong generation for two years and they've started the season well with a group that may not be as strong but they've, they've come along as a category one academy and they look really good so that'll be a, a challenge for them uh, it'll be one of those days where the first team the development squad and the under 18s will play pretty much at the same time the first team and the 18s are both away to crystal palace ironically and the dev squad are at home to leicester so as we've talked about many times before how you juggle the players between those three groups will offer an indication of how competitive or not you might be compared to if you were at your full strength, for example, but it's, it's a challenge. And I think if we were to talk in a month's time, we might have a better indication of where the 18s are. We'll have had another month of games and the table will have started to take shape. You've had a quarter to a third of the games by then. But right now there's plenty of promise in this group and there's been some, some early returns from a lot of the first years that look really, really exciting. But four league games and a cup game or two, I don't think it's really enough to to have any strong feelings about how the season may go yet. That is very fair. And uh, like I said, the season just got started and international break, which always happens. It kind of takes the wind out of the sail. So hopefully we can have a strong start to it's October. It's going to be interesting international-wise now that you say that. The under-18 league won't stop for the World Cup. The PL2 will. The under-18s will keep going. They haven't got a full-on schedule. I think they've got two, possibly three games uh, before they would ordinarily break for Christmas anyway, and they'll have a Youth Cup game in there as well. But that'll be interesting as well because they may, theoretically, everyone will be able to play a slightly stronger team with no PL2 games going on, for example. So if Lewis Hall and Brody Hughes are around, 
you need to get minutes into those players rather they, they get, there's obviously going to be friendlies you can't have players going most of November and then December and the Christmas break with no games it would just be longer than an off season in the summer so that would be interesting to see how a lot of clubs handle that but the 18s league continuing and the youth cup continuing will uh, like we see at first team level make this season like no other yeah. Uh, next up, we want to talk about some of the loan players. There were some deadline day moves that uh, saw some of our uh, top academy talent move out to challenge themselves kind of in the football pyramid. Uh, and the first one we should definitely talk about is uh, Harvey Vail and Xavier Simons. They went to Hull, uh, joining up with uh, fellow Chelsea Blue uh, Baxter in goal. Um, Hull might want to think about changing their colors to blue. I don't know, Phil. Maybe too soon? Too aggressive? They're just loanies. I mean, given everything else that's going on at Hull, I wouldn't put it past them to do that. <laughs> they are a very interesting club. They've got new ownership, and they have not been shy in throwing their weight around. They've got a ridiculously large senior squad of players, um, three on loan from Chelsea, one on loan from Arsenal, and several players signed from every corner of the globe, it would seem. And they have not enjoyed the best start to the season, so much so that as we talk, there is uncertainty as to whether manager Shota Avaladze will be in charge by the time this airs. Um, so not for the first time this season, Chelsea could have a loney who has a change of manager. We've already seen that with Tino Andrian at Huddersfield. He's had a fantastic start to the season. Um, when availability has allowed him to play, he's had illness and injury, but he played, he scored twice, um, I think against West Brom. In a first half, he was taken off at half-time, having been scheduled to play 45 minutes and scored twice in that game, man of the match. Outstanding player, but Huddersfield have already sacked their manager, Danny Schofield, who technically was his second manager of the season. Carlos Corberan was there and resigned like on the eve of the season. Danny Schofield took over, so there's change there. But back to Hull. Uh, Harvey went there after signing his new contract, and Xavier went shortly afterwards. I'm not convinced it's the best move for the pair of them in terms of what you could have had elsewhere. And that's not to knock the decisions that they've made because Hull are an ambitious, potentially top eight, top ten championship team if everything comes together there. But because they've got so many senior players, we haven't seen Xavier make his debut yet. Harvey got his first start against Swansea in a match that was televised on Sky over here. Uh, Swansea won 3-0 handsomely. Harvey didn't have the best game. He wasn't terrible. He was certainly no worse than anybody else in the whole shirt on a day where everybody had a really bad performance, which has led to doubts about the the manager's future. And then if you undergo a managerial change again, you've got whoever comes in at the behest of the rather unpredictable owners not taking a liking to the players that are there on loan. There's less of a commitment towards them than the the outlay on experienced players that they've signed elsewhere for fees for decent wages both players are championship caliber at the bare minimum in harvey's case i think is a good level for xavier to go in at but let's be patient i'm gonna i'm prepared to see how they go it's still very early days they signed at the end of the window and then we've had disruption to the schedule uh, and they haven't had a chance to settle in I'd, I'd happily be proved wrong and see them become key players before the World Cup break and not have to rethink the situation in January. I'm a little bit concerned just because of the number of players at Hull and the unpredictability that's going on at the club as to whether it is the ideal situation for them both to be in. That being said, I'm always reminded that Eddie Newton, who so successfully ran the loan department for a long time at Chelsea, 
would talk about facing these this type of adversity when you're away from Chelsea for the first time and you're not getting picked. It's what's your character like? Can you can you fight against it? Can you find your way back into the team? You don't necessarily need to just say, oh well, it's not working out. Let's find something else. He he famously talks about Mason Mount going to Vitesse. He didn't get into the team until November, uh, and ended up winning their Player of the Year award and has taken leaps and bounds um, ever since. So there's certainly value in that. Uh, and we'll wait to see what happens at Hull. But for two players who came into the season at, at really important times in their careers, I just wonder whether Hull was the best choice. Time will tell. But yeah, you know, I, when you talked about uh, overcoming adversity, I immediately thought of Mason and his time at Vitesse. You know, when we got to interview Mason at Cobham, he talked about that as like being a huge kind of turning point for him as well. You know, he did mm-hmm. want to kind of pack it up and come home. They're like, no, 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 no. You got this. You got this. And then... Boy, did he get it there. Um, the other one was Ethan Ampadu. He went to Spezia in Italy. Uh, it seemed like he always, he wasn't going to take any risks with playing time, knowing that Absolutely. Wales is going to the World Cup for the first time ever. This that, That's the biggest point to all of this. I was surprised in isolation that he went back, not just to Italy, but to a team that Okay, they're better than Venezia. Lower Venezia got relegated table. to Spezia, didn't <laughs> But a lower table Serie A team when I, I we spoke at the end of last season, I wouldn't have been surprised if Ethan moved on permanently this summer, given that there was a World Cup, given that he's been on loan several times before, um, and given that you could make a strong argument that he deserves a place in the first team squad for what he's achieved, the levels he's played at, the versatility he offers. But as you say, take no risks. Like so many of the other Chelsea youngsters this summer who may have had eyes for a permanent departure, they were talked into loans, hedging their bets by an ownership group who perhaps knew that, or obviously knew that they were changing managers at some point and there would be an opportunity for a fresh start under a new one if they weren't seeing eye to eye with Thomas Tuchel. So he's gone to Svesia. It's a very comfortable fit for him. Played in Syria last season, knows the league, knows what he can do in different positions. He's definitely going to the World Cup and we'll see what happens thereafter. He, as we spoke about at the end of last season, he's got a little bit of Trevor Chalabar about him and he can contribute right away in a Premier League squad and had Cesar Azpilicueta not signed a new two-year deal, I think we may have seen Ampadu stay for his ability to play anywhere in that back three, play in midfield, uh, and uh, even he played a, he's played a right back for Venezia and may well do again for Spezia having that sort of player in your squad is always going to be valuable um, maybe we just kick the can down the road for a year and see what happens next summer that's what Chelsea seemed to prefer to do he was seemingly more than happy to go along with it not to rock the boat and upset his chances of going to the World Cup and I'd be surprised if there was much more of a difference between what we saw from him at Venezia and what we'll see from him at Spezia uh, battling for every minute and an inch is what you're going to get with Ethan. Uh, yep. Brian Fiabema went to Forest Green Rovers. Uh, if I know anything about Forest Green Rovers, it is they are very eco-friendly. <laughs> they are, and I think that's what the majority of people know about them. This was an interesting one because he'd been on loan at Rosenborg in the Norwegian top flight since March time, off my head, maybe January. Um, the Norwegian season obviously runs it's through the weird, summer. It's weird, yeah. Uh, and... It looked like they, they had an option to buy, and I think they were trying to negotiate with him. There was talk in the Norwegian press that Brian had bought uh, an apartment in Trondheim and was all set to move out there. And then suddenly, 
the the deal has been cancelled and there's talk that they're trying to come to a, uh, an agreement to, to buy him. That didn't happen. So he's gone to the English third tier at Forest Green, uh, which will be a good test for him because he was in and around the first team uh, Rosenborg without getting a consistent run. Scored a goal or two and he's come back and reunited with uh, former academy teammate Miles Per Harris, who's on loan there from Brentford. Forest Green play a progressive brand of football under Ian Birchnell, who was hired in the summer to replace Rob Edwards, who'd got them promoted before getting the job at Watford. They like to play the the right way within in quotation marks. Um, and it's their first season in the third tier. He scored his first goal this week in the EFL Trophy. Took it very well. And he's got a lot of attributes and traits that work so well in the modern English game. I likened him shortly after signing to, to Dominic Solanke in the way that he approaches his game. He's got a similar build, a similar physical presence. He he makes the same sort of runs. He, he has similar movements to him. Uh, not necessarily the same player at the same age that Dom was. And Dom's taken a while to to become a regular Premier League footballer now at Bournemouth. Uh, but certainly coming to England, having that ability to now play in a busy schedule. He'll get more games playing for Forest Green in a 46-game league season than he would have at Rosenborg in the Norwegian top flight. I think it's a good step for him to take. We'll see where it goes. And I'm, I'm optimistic that he'll do well there just because when, when he played in the, in the development squad, mainly at Chelsea, you could see that there was so much raw material to work with. He would go through runs of scoring six in four or similar. And then he'd go two, three months without scoring because he would snatch at chances. He'd get in the right positions. He'd make the right runs. He'd do everything right, but the goals wouldn't flow. And I saw enough from him in, in those situations that when everything comes together and he just settles down that little bit extra uh, and and finds the ability to put those misses out of his head and focus on just the next chance that comes, he, he could get double figures goals for Forest Green this season which would be a really, really positive step forward for him. Oh, and massively exciting, you know, for, for obviously obvious reasons. I mean, we want all of our players to be successful. It also makes his value go up. If you want to be a cynic, you know, there's there's just multiple reasons why it all kind of works together. Um, the the next one, though, was uh, Jaden Ware went to Leighton Orient and, by the way, bagged a couple of goals. He did. He scored against Sutton, two goals in the first 10 minutes, in a red shirt. Revenge in the same, for the Dev In the same squad. competition that <laughs> Chelsea lost to Sutton uh, a month ago. Um, Chelsea may play against him at some point because I don't believe he's cup-tied from playing in that competition. I, I, I stand to be corrected on that because I haven't seen in recent times. But yeah, so Orient have had a fantastic start to their season uh, under Richie Wellens. And they've got Charlie Kelman and Aaron Drennan up front who are very similar players to Jay. So it wasn't necessarily a, a surprise to see them bring him in because A, he fits the, the prototype and the mould of what they want from a centre-forward. But B, we've seen him in the development squad so many times as a player who can make an impact as a substitute. He will hit that ground running at 100 mile an hour. There's no adjustment period for him when he comes into a game. The focus is there, the intensity is there, the running is there, and he'll put himself into dirty areas uh, and and take chances. Uh, and, and he can finish. He was the Dev Squad's top goalscorer last season in a really testing campaign. These goals here against Sutton, the first one, the ball bounced his way fortunately in the box and he had the composure to immediately take it in his stride and tuck it away. The second one, 
he was able to to travel with the ball a little bit, work a little bit of space and find the corner. There is a goal scorer there. It's a, it's a really useful asset for Orient to have in, again, a 46-game league season, one that isn't stopping for the World Cup. If you can rotate between your strikers and, and Jay becomes a legitimate option for you, which is an unknown. You're bringing a kid in from the Premier League Academy who doesn't have a whole lot of first-team experience. He played for Woking in the National League as a 17-year-old. But very promising to see him come into the first team, a rotated team in a competition that isn't given the highest priority by clubs, but say, nah, this is my opportunity. I've gone out there. He backed himself when he joined them. He said that he, he has goals in him. He will, he will always score goals. And he's backed that up in his first game. It, it will lead to more opportunities. And long may he continue to do that. Without a doubt, uh, you know, again, we, <laughs> we're getting a pretty strong loan army again, even with the revamped rules, which is uh, no surprise. And last, but definitely not least, Joe Haig went to Derby U21s. Um, a little bit of an interesting loan move, maybe? Question mark? Yeah, exactly. This is why I wanted to talk about it, because it's unusual for a player to go on loan from one under 21 to the next particularly having already played a season of under-21 football. Um, in Joe's case, I think it's because he'll get more playing time there than he feels he would have at Chelsea. He's had Amari Hutchinson come in. He's had Carney Chukwemeka come in. He's had Cesare Cassidy come in. He's had other players graduate from under-18s. I think the world of Joe, I think he's a fantastic player to watch, and he's been incredibly productive when he's played, particularly under-18 level. And even at under-21 level last season, that he it wasn't necessarily going for him all the time. But on the pitch, he'll get goals and assists. And you, you might want to see some more of the rest of his game come together, but that's the case for everyone around him. So if he felt that minutes were going to be hard to come by in the first half of the season, the loan is only until January. He's gone to Derby, who play in PL2 Division 2, a step lower from Chelsea. And he scored on his debut for them a, a, a Typical Joe Hay goal. He dribbled through three or four players and, and scored expertly away to West Brom last week. And I'm, I'm going to draw parallels to a very similar move that happened at under-18 level year before last. Chelsea did the same with Malik Mothersill. He wasn't getting minutes from the under-18s in his first year as a scholar. And he went to Derby for the second half of that season, scored half a dozen goals and, and really came along, came back, scored nearly 20 last season for the 18s. So there's a relationship that's there. Derby have struggled for numbers because they struggled to exist as a club until the summer. They were under so much financial hardship that it was hard for them to retain their younger players. The better ones, like Dylan Williams, ended up at Chelsea. They were picked off by other clubs. They had to put together a first-team squad at short notice, and that has knock-on effects to the academy. So they were certainly looking around for, for some some depth and for options. And if everything has come together for Joe to go up there, get more games than he would at Chelsea and come back in January and be an option to Chelsea, that would be great because I'd love to see him succeed at Chelsea. I think there is a really high level player in there. Just one who may take that little bit longer to come around. He's not physically quick. He's not physically strong. He's a fantastic dribbler. He's got a great appreciation of space and he's productive, but we just need to see how his individual development pathway comes along. And throughout all of these, the low moves we've discussed and everything else that's gone on, I'm also drawn to question not necessarily who is orchestrating all of it but the loan department isn't what it was once upon a time Carlo Cudicini essentially runs it in the way that Eddie Newton used to run it Claude Bacalelli is officially the loan technical mentor but as I understand it isn't around as much as some others Andy Myers has moved across into the loan department and in the absence of a technical director and in the absence of any real senior footballing management at the club with the clear out that they've had over the last couple of months, 
it's it's hard to orchestrate and pull all of these loan moves together. Neil Bath will obviously have some say, uh, more than some say. Um, Carlo Guadagini will be driving it and clubs will have their own interests. But I, I tend to think with some of these moves that more than maybe in previous transfer windows, that a lot of them may be more agent-driven. And you may see them inclined to make moves to clubs that are favourable or they think that there's a good opportunity there financially or so on and so forth. There are a lot of, lot of reasons that can take make a move happen that aren't necessarily financial. I could be very much wrong on this, but just with the, the void in overall leadership and direction this summer, understandably in some cases we've gone through a very big takeover and they're trying to put their own footprint on the club. Some of these moves may not work out as well as expected. Some will, some won't. And I think it's just something to bear in mind as to when we revisit these in January, hopefully with a new football hierarchy, that it was it's a testing transfer window for a lot of people and some of the loan moves that may appear questionable may be so because of that. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, maybe gaps or, you know, people kind of filling in in different areas with the the ownership transition and even a lot of leadership roles being transitioned as well. But um, sounds like we're 0 for 1 on uh, director football. So we'll go on to the next one and see how it happens. But, uh, you know, it's good to know that there's a, a formalized structure being put in place and um, with the goal of unifying, you know, the women's team, the men's team, and the academy who in each of their own rights are highly successful. How can we leverage that across uh, multiple divisions and departments so that way maybe a secret that the men are doing um, isn't isolated from the women and the youth and vice versa all the way around. So I, I think the intent is what I am, am excited most about. Definitely. I, I fully agree with that. I think it's a really exciting time. We can look upon this negatively. They didn't get their first target here and everything's playing itself out in front of the press in a way you would rather not see happen. But there's so much scope for just game-changing and club-changing decisions to be made in the next couple of months. A sporting director, a technical director, uh, an expanded and enhanced data analysis team potentially growing with the, the partnership clubs that we heard Todd Bowley talk about at the SALT conference, will there be a partnership club in Portugal or in Belgium or in the Netherlands or in France or in Brazil or wherever else? There are so many things that are going to come across all of our tables and in front of us in the next few months that will change how Chelsea work as a club in a way that we haven't known previously. The Abramovich era was transcendent in so many ways, particularly those first two, three years when Chelsea were setting things up and and positioning themselves at the top of the the football table. Now that Chelsea are there, this is an opportunity to to think of what the next 10 years look like. And the Academy have been doing that with uh, Neil, Neil Bath's project Vision 2030. And now we're going to see what, what Todd Burley and Clear Lake have as a vision for the whole club. And I think it's incredibly exciting, if a little bit unpredictable right now. Yeah, no, without a doubt. Well, we appreciate you for keeping us connected to what's going on at Cobham. Uh, I think the club are doing a better job. I mean, there's highlights on the website. They're tweeting more about it. I think they've even live streamed some things as well. So uh, I, I think we're seeing a lift in youth coverage, which is good. I think there'll be more to follow. I think, again, it's 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 one of the things that will be worked out. They couldn't do anything during the sanction period. They couldn't even film or broadcast highlights. Now that we're back, I know there are discussions being had and, and questions being asked as to whether you the you can have an uptick in under-18 games being streamed, development squad being streamed. There's an unfortunate Premier League rule that prevents you from broadcasting PL2 games live at the same time as a 
Premier League game is being broadcast on Sky or BT over here, which is farcical to say the least. And because of the way the schedule works in this first half of the season before the World Cup, a lot of games happen to clash. But as we go along, I think they'll they'll find their way and you, you might see certainly more live coverage on Chelsea platforms of the academy teams and uh, developing uh, an enhanced general coverage yeah. that was certainly there for a while, let's say under Joe Edwards and Jody Morris. It had a, a prominent place. Uh, maybe it took a back seat for a little while. We might see a return, fingers crossed anyway. I'd certainly all for much more coverage, considered coverage and accessibility to everything with the Academy and Chelsea. Yeah, no, absolutely. So anyways, but if you do ever want to know how or when or where to watch the U teams go to film, he will tweet out a link. And, and, disclaimer, if there is a link, because there's not always. And so I think sometimes... If there is a link, I will tweet it several times on the game day <laughs> and around kickoff itself. It, it will not stop people asking, where can I watch this? Correct. Um, I would just like to point people in the direction of... Just go onto my timeline, have a look through the day's tweets, and you'll find it. I, I, it's not if it's if it's there to be watched, there will be information somewhere this on my feed on is that day. A PSA, people, don't ask him if it's there. It's there. If not, it's because it doesn't exist. But uh, yeah, like I said, make sure you're following Phil if you're not, as always. Uh, but thank you for the update, sir. This is full, comprehensive, touched on everything. Very exciting. Um, I'm looking forward to the October one uh, already just with, uh, if I look at the fixtures and things that are coming down the pipeline, no shortage of stuff. So, uh, rest up during the international break. You're going to need it. We're going to hit the ground hard here post break. <laughs> it's a very, very busy October. There are two EFL trophy games. There are three UEFA youth league games. There are more than one Saturday with under 18 and development squad games at the same time. It's a jam-packed schedule. I think there's a dozen academy games. There's a dozen first-team games. There's certainly no shortage of things going on. Absolutely. Well, anyways, that's going to wrap us up. Hope you are enjoying the content over the international break. More stuff coming at you, as always. But until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.